Hello darlings, and welcome to what will hopefully be a slightly shorter uh, episode of Stitch Talks-ish. So, episode 5 is all about Laurel K. Hamilton, which I'm sure nobody actually wants, but everybody's getting. Because, despite the fact that I keep saying, I'm done with her, her books are really bad, um, I'm not done with her, even though her books are really bad that's who we are here. Um, Because when I see her work, by the time I see it, it's like, wow, she's still like that, you know? Um, And it's not like I have anything else to do. And there are only so many um, K-pop, K-hip-hop related uh, pieces I'm going to be able to make without you guys just straight up showing up here and fighting me. Uh, So... I have returned for the roast. I cannot promise that I will do anything else, but I have returned to roast Laurel K. Hamilton, which, if you're new to my site, to my social media, I've been doing this for a really long time. For me. Like, five years minimum. When I started my website, I started um, using her stuff as a regular feature, so I was doing uh, the great big Anita Blake reread where I would reread her um books and talk about like the good the bad and the just plain ugh and I'd stop because we started getting into the book that were just uncomfortable um and I don't know if I'll ever return to them depends on how bored I get um but part of the problem with the Anita verse has been that they just don't end you she writes a lot of words and says nothing. And I know that some of you guys reading my site are like, mm, okay, you do that too. Yes, but I'm cute. Okay, I'm cute. That's how I get away with it. Anyway, um, in part because I'm bored and in part because she is very much on social media, uh, let's get a roasting. So... April 28th, Laurel K. Hamilton uh, actually responded to a tweet from a fan that was praising her diversity in her books. Uh, one of the things that the Twitter user in question said was that her that they liked her books because they showed how there's no black and white in the world. And she, so she turns around and she thanks this person and says, it's funny, I was writing about diversity before it was cool. So First of all, uh, writing about diversity is not cool, as in, if you go into it with that approach, you're not going to write very well. This is that can race bending be done wrong thing. Um, Yes, clearly. Hmm. If you're only doing this to get points to win, no shit, it's going to be bad. And in the case of the Anita Blake series, it's really bad. So, the first Anita Blake book came out in 1993, which means that it is almost as old as I am. Um, It is older than most members of BTS, just saying, since I need to bring them up. (laughs) Um, And it is bad at diversity. Um, So, Anita is, of course, the first uh, character of color that you are introduced to in Guilty Pleasures. Um... 
from the start, Anita's heritage as Mexican-American woman, she's biracial, Mexican-American, really doesn't matter. Her heritage isn't brought up, her culture is not really addressed. The first Mexican character that you see whose Mexicanness is addressed is the um, were-rat king Raphael. And we have to just think about that. Like, she introduced a Mexican character who is a giant rat, right? And uh, the first time he's seen, he is in, um, he's in partially shifted form. So he looks like um, a giant rat. Um, and that's, that's not great. Like, one of the things, though, that she did was, like, so she keeps focusing on um, Raphael's, like, strong Mexican features and how he doesn't have an accent. And and this is in the first book, too. So from the start, her her grasp of diversity was really bad. You have the, um, the vampire Luther, who was uh, a former cop who, once he was turned, started working at a bar in the red red light red district that all the vampire related uh, entertainment is in in st louis um that's that's really it like i saw um over the past week i know i saw people talking about slash roasting some author who wrote like a how to do diverse literature that was had tips like just do a find and replace and replace the characters last names to make them diverse and that is not how you write, first of all, but that's also not how you create a good story. That's not how you do diversity. And it's how and how the Anita Blake series fails. You have all of these characters. So when you have characters of color in the Anita verse, right, half of them are feel like, you know, that she did find and replace on their last names, right? They are people of color in name only. Then you have the characters who are really wildly described, um, usually racistly described. Um, so in August 2018, uh, my petty ass posted uh, two white bread for this shit. Um, and it was uh, like a 7,000 word essay on the Anita Blake series and the Mary Gentry series and how Hamilton's racism uh, and like her actual racism, I literally show at the end her examples of her real world racistness. Um, and, and just two examples, because I didn't want to go through her Twitter or deal with any of that. Um, and how that ties back into the racism in her books, all of her books. So I put that out the day that Serpentine, I think, came out. Because uh, I don't think we got an Anita Blake book last year. Um, I hope not. Really hope not. Um, so I talked about how, um, in 2010, Hamilton, uh, did an essay. So she's an essay collection for the Ardour, which is her, um, well, her sex pollen, kind of. Um, and so the collection is all about like sexuality and stuff in the Anita Blake series. And she writes the introduction to each um, essay. And so there's one essay about race uh, specifically that does talk about blackness. And she gives this convoluted explanation 
for why there are few, if any, black vampires in her works. And think about the fact that St. Louis is a place where the black population is like 25 to 30%, I believe. And yet there aren't really any black characters, much less blank black vampires. Um, so here's her quote uh, introducing Mikhail Lub- Lubansky's essay, Are the Fangs Real? Vampires as Racial Metaphor in the Anita Blake series. Hamilton writes that I have debated on whether to share the real reason that there are not more African-American or dark-skinned vampires in my books. I can't decide if it's politically correct to say it here. The truth is that all vampires are paler as a vampire than they were as live people. Thus, someone of African-American descent would be paler. But how pale? I was pretty sure that if I had characters that were African-American but paled them all out, that I'd be accused of trying to literally whitewash them. Was I overthinking it? Maybe. But at the beginning of the series, I was very aware that I was white-bred as far as I knew and didn't have any experiences here to draw on. I was in my early 20s and I just couldn't figure out a way to ask the question of someone without sounding stupid or racist or both. I will personally let you uh, decide what she sounds like to you. I'm going with racist. But here's the thing. Vampires aren't real. Therefore, vampire biology is what you make of it. It is entirely a choice that Hamilton makes to go, oh, the vampires in this world lighten when they're turned, so a black vampire would be a light-skinned vampire. So basically a dark-skinned vampire would look ashy, but these are choices she's made. Um, I write vampires as well, and my vampires do not get light, you know? Because, like, I haven't been outside in since March 13th. I am not noticeably lighter, you know? So if being indoors all this time isn't, like, whitewashing me, I'm gonna be real. It's probably, you know, not seeing the sun for a couple hundred years is probably not gonna whitewash a black vampire. And it's really weird because, um, so that was 2010. By 2020, she has a bunch of dark-skinned, non-black vampires of color, like, across her series. Many of them are uh, indigenous, um, or they're uh, Indian uh, from India, just saying, in case you somehow didn't get that. Um, So she's capable of creating and showing vampires of color with melanin, just not if they're black and that's just weird that like she admitted any of this uh if you have the essay collection you could also read that full introduction to see her bring up sickle cell because she is racist and was just going for it just leaned into that huh but it's like from the beginning the anita verse has been not diverse um you have uh there's a whole book um where anita is kind of like she's dealing with um dominga 
she's a Mexican um, animator who lives in St. Louis who's evil and the Hamilton immediately sets it up where pale skin dark of hair Anita is like this fair little princess to this woman who's noticeably brown all of her minions are brown um it's just it is very obvious that she sets up binaries and dichotomies and very firmly believes that people of color who can pass as white are better on some level that she has not figured out that she shouldn't be putting them on than people of color who do not pass um and that's like book five like she's written a series that is almost as old as i am and at this point she still sucks at diversity y'all like here's uh two things about bernardo spotted horse the series only prominent uh native character he was first introduced in obsidian butterfly um and he's still pretty much written as a sex object so let's talk about that by introducing him He was tanned a lovely even brown, though some of that was natural color because he was American Indian. Then, she says, was it racist to say that his features were more white than Indian or was it just true? That's the only native character in the series. Like, how do you do that? How do you congratulate yourself for writing diversity when your idea of diversity is Bernardo Spotted Horse, who, again, is described as being brown because some of it was his natural color, um, who's said to have features that were more white than Indian, um, who's honestly the most notable thing about him is that he has a giant penis. You know, and like I said in my article, like when I read the, when I read Obsidian Butterfly first, I was like a tween, maybe, maybe 15 or 16 at the most. And I was like, wow, this is like titillating. This is really hot. Uh, In the same way that like some of Anne Rice's stuff before I realized she really can't write erotica was hot. Like I was like, oh yeah, this is great. And then I figured out how to write and I was like, yikes. But does Hamilton not go back and read her own work? I mean, uh, as recently as whenever Serpentine was published, you had Hamilton um, reduce him to a sex object. The first time Anita sees him, uh, as far as I can remember, the first time that Anita sees him after uh, however long it's been since their previous meeting uh, in between Obsidian Butterfly and now... Bernardo is surrounded by women who are primarily white, who are half-dressed, clinging to him, because he's been basically working his way through um, their friend's wife's bridal party. He is a walking sex toy for these women. Um, A lot of the secondary plot, or tertiary plot of of the book, involves the fallout from... Um, him not satisfying one of these women and how one of the women that he's been with 
gets like kidnapped or killed or something and it's all about like his guilt for not being like a more attentive boy toy and like y'all that's not diversity that's not diversity um i posted on patreon uh, the first chapter of a story i was working on which was kind of directly in response to how uh hamilton writes uh how she writes bernardo right and and just the idea of the anita blake series and i kind of scrapped it because i didn't want to have a native character be my big bad um I didn't want a Native American character to be my Jean-Claude because that's how it ended up. And like knowing that I can write circles around Laurel K. Hamilton and I'm clearly better versed in what meaningful representation and diversity is. And I still went, I will put a pin in that and I will figure out a better way to get Native representation in this in this book. And she, like 20 years later, still can't figure out that she shouldn't write um, male characters of color as sex objects. Like, how are you patting yourself on the back on Twitter of all places for how diverse your books are when your books aren't diverse? Like, you can't just put a bunch of brown paper dolls in your book and say, oh, diversity. Especially when her portrayal of these characters of color is flat out racist often. Uh, so here's how she has Anita describe Munus slash Moon. I think he's one of her guards in skin trade. The last man was also ethnic, but I wasn't entirely sure what flavor. His short hair was curly enough to be African American, but the skin tone and facial features were not quite that. <laughs> The first sentence is bad uh, because ethnic, this book came out, I think, 2016, uh, let's say between 2012 and 2016, right? At that point, why is she using the word ethnic to describe a person of color? But then there's that whole, like, she clearly sees people of color as food objects, like, I wasn't entirely sure what flavor. No. Unless you're writing a cannibal, and she is not, thank God. You don't write people like that. But then there's Anita. Anita spends so much time, like, staring at other people and trying to figure out what they are. She's like, what are you? You could be black. Or you could be Pacific Islander. Like, like, she just stands there, like, like I always imagine when she has these moments where she's introduced to a new character of color in the series, but she just stands there staring at them, making them uncomfortable, as she tries to figure out, like, where they're from, where their people are from. Like, but how about, cause, okay, because that's bad, right? Wait for this scene, this excerpt from Kiss the Dead. So they found, uh, like, an injured vampire, and... Anita's first thought. The man blinked large, dark eyes at me, his face grimacing in pain. His short hair was naturally black to match the slight uptilt of his eyes. I wasn't a good judge of Asian ethnicity. If I had to guess, I'd have said Japanese or Chinese, but he could have been Korean. I guess it didn't matter. He was slender and about my size 
so he looked delicate for a man. <sighs> Laurel is a racist, and she's made Anita a racist, and it's kind of funny, but it's also not funny at all. So this snippet reads like Baby's first like East Asian media fanfiction. Like, this is probably how I wrote Pet Shop of Horrors fanfiction when I was like 12. Like, this is how I may have written County, except like I would never have a character try to guess what another character's ethnicity is, because even at 12 I wasn't like that. But like, the hair and the eyes? Eh, probably. Um, but it's like, like, I wasn't a good judge of Asian ethnicity. And then she proceeds to guess. Also, nobody asked her to guess. No one went, hey, Anita, uh, that vampire that we just, uh, that we're saving, what is he? No one asked because normal non-racist people don't ask. They don't ask these questions. Like, she could have, if she wanted to show the character, the vampire's, uh, ethnicity, um, could have had him ask for help you know in his language and have one of the vampires or shifters around her that speak whatever language it was like meng meng di meng dai i don't even know because my audiobooks are full of mispronunciations by the way isn't that weird when you're listening to an audiobook and they don't pronounce words right there are a bunch of mispronounced words across the anita blake series weird but there are multiple Chinese and Chinese-American characters in the Anita-verse because the tiger shifters are biracial, uh, most are biracial, um, or just not biracial, uh, Chinese characters. So, and, and they were all raised to prioritize their heritage, and so they are all, all because of how, how Laurel writes, probably do speak Chinese. So could have had this vampire say something in Chinese like like just say he said something in a language I couldn't recognize and then one of the Chinese shifters is like responds back there's um there's a Japanese a biracial Japanese American shifter I think he's a wolf could have done it with him I don't think they have any Korean characters. I'm assuming that, like, at some point, Laurel will get into K-pop and then we'll all suffer. I don't know. We'll see. But, like, there are ways to, especially if you're writing in our world, to show ethnicity without being racist. And she has yet to figure that out. But, again, she is on Twitter patting herself on the back for writing diversity before it was cool. And this is why I get so annoyed when people praise her for her diversity there are lots of people like when you go oh i would like to read a queer urban fantasy with strong characters of color we'll recommend the anitaverse even though um this book is rape culture on steroids even though her queer characters are stereotypes and predators it would be like y'all recommending um Sherilyn Kenyon's anything as good queer representation when if you remember Sherilyn Kenyon's um her entire body of work is really homophobic oh my god it's it's bad it's, it's really bad y'all 
there are writers who will pat themselves on the back and be like, oh man, I'm so great, I did this, I did that. But then you read their work and it's garbage. And it's harmful garbage too, which is the other problem. Like if it was just badly written, that'd be one thing. But Anita is openly antagonistic to characters of color. The way characters of color are written and treated across both series is really bad. And it's just, don't recommend her as diverse work. If you're like, oh man, this is a guilty pleasure because it's entertaining, because it's so bad, because I lay there and I mentally rewrite everything until it's satisfying and Bernardo is treated well, like I do sometimes, go for it. But this is not good diverse fiction. It is not even bad diverse fiction because it is not diverse, y'all. It is not diverse fiction. It is a mess. Understand that. It is a mess. It is not well done. And Hamilton is not an author I feel comfortable recommending. I read her work because I am masochistic. Her stuff's not good. Like at all. Um, At this point, because I keep harping on Bernardo, because he could have been my favorite character. Um, Bernardo is part of a trio of bounty hunters slash grandfathered in federal marshals. And we're going to talk about that in a second, because that's just weird. Um, So there's Edward, who is um, living a normal human life as Ted Forrester. And then you have Olaf, who is a cannibalistic, serial-killing rapist, right? Who becomes a were-lion at one point, right? So you have Edward, who is also a serial killer. Let's be very real here. Edward's a serial killer. Olaf, a serial killer. Bernardo, not a serial killer. In fact, primarily, he did work as a bodyguard before he kind of started working with Edward full-time-ish. Now, which character do you think is dehumanized across the series? Which character has no shot at anything resembling a happy ending? Which character do we not know anything about, like, 20 years after their first appearance? I'm thinking it's Bernardo. Like, how do you fuck that up that badly? Like, you finish Serpentine with pretty much the same amount of knowledge that you started Obsidian Butterfly with when it comes to Bernardo. Which is why sometimes I mentally rewrite everything and give Bernardo a good life and a hot wife who's really nice, but also possibly eats people, because I get to do that. But whatever I come up with is still going to be better than Hamilton's. Just saying, because she's bad at this. So, let's talk about cop competency porn and some other pet peeves. So if you've read the Anita Blake series, one thing that's really clear is that uh, Hamilton really likes cops, (laughs) You can also see it from her blogs. She does a lot of talking about, like, her cop friends, her cop buddies. And, like, as someone who's related to cops, lots of cops, they're not that cool. Calm down. Like, chill. 
Um, but it's weird. So Anita is currently kind of a cop. She is a federal marshal. She, at some point within the past, like, 15 books, was grandfathered into the U.S. federal marshal program because she's a vampire executioner. So she goes from consulting occasionally with the Regional Investigative Preternatural Department to getting cases assigned to her somewhat. She never does any paperwork. All she does is shoot people or fuck them. Uh, And that's how she solves her cases. Um, There's nothing that explains how she was able to be a deputy marshal. So I actually have the qualifications up here um, for becoming a deputy U.S. marshal. So let's see how many Anita hits and how many she doesn't. And this will be in the context of our world and hers. So, must be a U.S. citizen. Yep. She is uh, Mexican-American, born and raised in St. Louis. Must be between the ages of 21 and 36. I believe she was made, um, this grandfathering in happened before she was 30. Must have a bachelor's degree, one year of specialized experience, or a combination of education and experience equivalent to the GL07 level. I didn't look up to see what the GL07 level is, but Anita does have a bachelor's degree in biology, and if this is where the grandfathering in comes in, she has been um, a vampire executioner, licensed uh, in like five states for over a decade. So maybe. Must have a valid driver's license in good standing. She does. Must complete a structured interview and other assessments. She has not done that. Must successfully complete a background investigation. She could not do that. She couldn't. There's no way because she is connected to uh, the master of the city of St. Louis as well as other vampires uh, across the world, which means that her uh, loyalties are suspect and she's connected to people who are actually criminals, uh, like the master vampire of uh, St. Louis, not St. Louis, Las Vegas, is a mob boss, basically. Criminal. Um, Must meet medical qualifications. Um, Anita Blake is not human. And so far in the series, shapeshifters, vampires, whatever, actually can't work in law enforcement. Um, So because of the inconsistencies with her medical exams, Anita would not meet medical qualifications to be a deputy U.S. Marshal just from that alone. Uh, That's before you get into the fact that Anita has um, no control over her shapeshifting. Uh, she cannot shapeshift, but she is controlled by the beasts that live within her. She has like 36 at this point. So she is constantly um, fighting them. Then you have the ardeur. So um, Anita literally has an incubus-ish within her that can force her to feed on people. And she is not fed well via sex. She can die. Um, must be in excellent physical condition. Technically, yes, she would pass that because of the weird everything inside of her. But because she is, again, not really human, she wouldn't even get that far. 
And lastly, must undergo a rigorous 21 and a half week basic training program at the United States Marshal Training Service Training Academy in Georgia that we have never gotten um, even a side story about Anita going through training. It ain't happening. The other thing is that you can't just grandfather in someone. You can't be like, well, you've been working with the FBI for 20 years, so I guess you're an FBI agent now. Not how that works. Um, what's weird is that while the Anita Blake series has all this cop competency porn, like she's constantly like, as a cop, well, I'm a cop, a cop, I'm a cop. Um, Anita... Anita's relationships with cops are really antagonistic. Like, she doesn't actually seem to have good relationships with cops she can't control. So she's unwilling to um, say outright, like, hashtag all cops are bad. But she's like, I am the only good cop, but also so are the cops that I control in some aspect. And it's just like, wild. Wild. And, and she just constantly, again, refers to herself as a cop. I wonder if this is how, um, part of this is how Hamilton gets away with Anita traveling everywhere with guns. I mean, the United States is basically open carry at your own risk. Um, but, like, Anita carries around so many weapons. Like, she's like, I have a, a knife the length of my back taped to my back. And it's like, nobody... Nobody says anything about the fact that she has a knife the size of her spine strapped to her spine. Why? Um, I also really wasn't satisfied with, like, so most of the Anita Blake books are set in St. Louis, which I know nothing about, so that's fine. Um, but sometimes Anita goes on field trips. Most of the places she's been, I haven't been. But she was down here in Florida, the Keys, but still Florida, and like it was bad, <laughs> y'all, it was bad. Um, I think that Hamilton is very much uh, an example of write what you know, because when she tries to step out of her own borders, her own boundaries, she writes straight nonsense, y'all. My gosh nonsense and it is unending like you don't have to do this Hamilton stop stop um other pet peeves include the fact that Nathaniel is getting more and more um attention Nathaniel is basically the Xander of the Anitaverse and if you know anything about Xander you should know that that's really bad for a lot of reasons. Uh, if you know anything about Xander from Buffy um, and how gross and terrible Xander is, because he's terrible and gross. I just, I'm so tired of him. I'm so tired of Nathaniel. I also, um, for a book series that people keep saying is super queer, you also have a ton of characters who, it's not even micro labels they're using. It's like Micah is like, I am only attracted to Nathaniel. And that's it. And that's fine. But then... That is not... I don't even have an explanation for this. But it's just how, how Hamilton handles sexuality. How she has the characters handle their sexuality. And they all handle it the same way. They all basically 
start out going, oh, I'm straight, I don't want to be with anybody of my gender or a gender that I'm not attracted to. And then they're like, oh, I'm heteroflexible. And then they're like, well, I'm queer, but only the specific way so that I can use the label queer. But then I am pretty much not actually queer. And like, sorry to gatekeep. This is just, I've been reading this series since I was a baby. And so the the way that Anita and everybody's been evolving their sexuality is not great. And if they were real people, I actually would be like, yeah, no, just explore your sexuality. You're only attracted to, to Nathaniel Micah? Go for it. But in the context of this book and how sexuality is used and how it's written about, no, no, it's it's not good. It's not good at all. So... We're supposedly getting the uh, next Anita Blake book, Sucker Punch, which is going to be set up in uh, Michigan. I don't know if it's up near near, uh, Mackinac. Um, I have a friend, her grandparents live up there. Um, But it's up north, I think, um, where there's a place where nobody can have cars. Um, I'm not entirely sure about that one. But we are almost... 30 years into the Anita Blake series, right? And over 30 years into urban fantasy because technically, um, I well, I would count um, Anne Rice as the godmother of the genre, not Hamilton, because I don't actually think Hamilton gets her own beats, right? Uh, to say that she's doing urban fantasy beats. And... Um, the thing is that I I am happy to see that the genre is moving past, has long since moved past a lot of the people held up as classics in the genre. So you have the Hamiltons, the Butchers, even the Harrisons, but they're not really the priority. Like, yes, I'm excited that Kim Harrison does have a new book coming out, like a sequel to The Hollows. You know, maybe she'll be better at that bisexuality thing with Ivy and Rachel. Maybe. But there are other writers who are doing really cool stuff. And maybe they're also still problematic because we are people and people are problematic. But they are doing some interesting shit. Like, uh, Stephanie on, I mention Stephanie pretty much all the time I can because Stephanie's work is really good. Uh, it's really innovative, queer urban fantasy surrounding Korean American character, right? Like you have diversity on the page and you have it meaningful. You have it interesting. Um, Harrietta is not cookie cutter trying to be perfect. Um, she's a hot mess and I love her. Um, Rachel Aaron just came out with a new series, uh, the end of a new series, which is pretty good. I haven't finished it yet, but I will before the end of the month. Um, her Heart Strikers series is really good, even though she did, through an act of world building, pretty much kill off all the black people in Detroit before her series started, which is frustrating. <laughs> but even when authors these new authors fail they're failing in innovative way by the way like i i read a lot of newer urban fantasy and i'm like i'm always entertained and i'm always like oh this is really good i see what's what the point is i see where they're going what 27 books into the anita blake series 
and I don't know what's going on. I don't know why uh, well, I don't know why it should matter. I don't know who's actually buying her books. You know? I I don't see a point to the Anita Blake series in 2020. And maybe it would help if Hamilton got an editor or she looked at her story bible or something, but as we're going I don't see the point at all. Um, well, now I'm not going to make a promise because I don't like doing that, but we'll see how um, doing either a reread or some kind of interactive re-engagement with the Anita Blake series goes, if that's something I could do. Um, the next installment of the Hollows reread for Dead Witch Walking will be up on Patreon uh, by the end of May, possibly the end of June at the latest. Um, and I'm really excited for that. For the next episode of Stitch Talks-ish, I honestly can't tell you what we'll talk about. Possibly the end of Mass Effect Andromeda. Possibly building your own narrative through video games. Maybe just video games, because Animal Crossing is really cute. Who knows? But thank you for listening, all like 12 of you. <laughs> it's been great. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're able to be with people you love during these stressful times. And I hope that I'm able to entertain you through my podcast. Thank you for listening.